1: Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.
2: There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, arrived they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning.
0: of murder. Not all serial killers have a low IQ. In fact, a large number of them are considered incredibly intelligent. It's how they create such chaos without being caught. On January 22nd, 1930, a man was born who had an IQ of 116. A man who would use his intelligence to escape an inescapable prison and take the lives of over 150 young girls. So, if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Daniel Camargo Barbosa was born on January 22, 1930, into a wealthy family in Anolaima, a small town in the Colombian Andes. His father, a local businessman, was described as overbearing and distant, and his mother, unfortunately, died when he was very young. He was then raised predominantly by his incredibly abusive stepmother, who forced him to wear dresses out of her obsession with having a daughter of her own. Despite his rough home life, Daniel was extremely intelligent and excelled in school, but no matter how hard he tried and how much he succeeded, his father had little to no interest in his son. Eventually, Daniel stopped trying, leaving most of his interactions to be with his stepmother, who ridiculed and beat him every chance she got. On one occasion, after getting in trouble at school for getting into a fight, She took away all of Daniel's pants, forced him to wear women's clothing, and invited his school friends to come over and laugh at him. From that moment on, the once-popular boy turned into the main subject of bullying. Daniel, as he grew older, took these events and manifested it into a hatred for all women and anything feminine. In the early 1940s, Daniel was sent to a prestigious all-male Catholic boarding school in Bogota, where he once again excelled academically. Unfortunately, a financial hardship forced him to drop out of school and get a job as a door-to-door salesman to support the family. And the charming young boy was actually pretty good at his job. Not only did he put food on the table, but the job allowed him to meet a client named Alcira Castillo, and after only a few dates, he convinced her to rent a house with him and move in together. Unfortunately, the expenses were too great, and to try and supplement the difference— Daniel robbed another client shop in May of 1958 and earned his first arrest and prison sentence. Years passed, and despite being in a relationship with Alcira and having two children together, Daniel fell in love with a 28-year-old woman named Esperanza. But even that relationship hit a roadblock when he found out that she wasn't a virgin, something incredibly important to him. So together, the pair formed an agreement. If Esperanza helped Daniel find virgins to have sex with, they could remain together. So Esperanza began luring young girls into an apartment under false pretenses, drugging them, and allowing Daniel to rape their unconscious bodies. Together, the pair raped five young girls, but ultimately left them alive. The first four kept their attack quiet, but the fifth reported her abuse, and the pair were arrested and tried for their crimes in April of 1964. Daniel was initially sentenced to just three years in prison, but another judge took over and gave him five additional years. Daniel served all eight years in prison and was released. Less than a year later, Daniel found himself back behind bars for being in Brazil undocumented. But because of a delay in sending his criminal records, he was simply deported and released with his false identity. He returned to Colombia where he worked as a street vendor selling television monitors, a far cry from the successful businessman his father wanted him to be. While working on the streets on May 2nd, 1974, Daniel saw a nine-year-old girl who was standing near her school. He lured her away to a secluded area, raped the young girl, and, learning from his mistakes that got him sent to prison, ended her life so she could not testify against him. He left her body amongst the TV sets he was transporting, and the next day, came back to dispose of her, but was followed by a police officer who arrested him less than 24 hours after the murder. He was convicted and sentenced to 30 years of seclusion in Gorgana, an island 35 kilometers off of Colombia's Pacific coast. He was sent to the island in December of 1977. At this point, some sources claim that Daniel was responsible for raping more than 80 young women in Colombia. In November of 1984, Daniel Camargo Barbosa was able to escape from the island after years of studying the ocean's current and fashioning a primitive boat. He was the first prisoner to ever escape the island known as the Colombian Alcatraz. I guess he put that high IQ to use. Because no one had ever escaped the island before, officials believed he simply sunk in the ocean and was eaten by sharks. In reality, he made his way to Quito, Ecuador, and just over 10 days after arriving, abducted a 9-year-old girl and the next day took a 10-year-old girl. While in Ecuador from 1984 to 1986, Daniel committed at least 54 rapes and murders in Guayaquil. The local police were stumped and initially thought the deaths were the work of a gang. They couldn't fathom that one man could be responsible for such destruction. He would pretend to be a foreigner looking for a Protestant pastor who worshipped at a church in the outskirts of town. He told these young, helpless girls that he had to deliver a large sum of money and offer them a reward if they helped him. These girls were often from low-income backgrounds and in desperate need of money. So they helped the incredibly charming man, following him to their deaths. Other times, he pretended to be a factory worker offering them a job. And when passerbys looked at the pair walking through town, They simply assumed he was the girl's grandfather. If the girls ever grew suspicious, he would let them leave and would not force them to follow. But if they fell for his ruse wholeheartedly, they were strangled or stabbed to death before being left in the forest to be cleaned by scavengers. Many believe Daniel Camargo Barbosa was responsible for the lives of over 150 young girls over the course of just 10 years in both Colombia and Ecuador. In June of 1988, the body of 12-year-old Gloria Andino was found and connected to the deaths of Daniel's other victims. But something was different about Gloria, something that would prove to be incredibly important. Clutched in her hands was a candy wrapper, and on that candy wrapper was a fingerprint that did not belong to her. It belonged to Daniel Barbosa. Around this same time, a patrolman stopped Daniel for suspicious behavior And when questioned and searched, they found a photo of an earlier victim and decided to arrest him. After being identified by one of the girls who was able to escape, Daniel calmly and without remorse confessed to killing 72 girls in Ecuador since he arrived there in 1984 and even led police to the bodies of those they had not yet recovered, bodies that had been dismembered and left in the forest. He went on to say that he chose children because they were virgins. And he liked virgins, quote, because they cried. He said he wanted revenge on women's unfaithfulness and hated them for not being what he believed women were supposed to be. Daniel Carmargo Barbosa was convicted in 1989 and sentenced to the maximum sentence in Ecuador, 16 years. On November 13, 1994, Daniel was stabbed to death by a man named Giovanni Noguera, the nephew of one of his victims. He was 64 years old at the time of his murder. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to what terrible thing happened on January 23rd. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime-obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe. Wondery's new true crime podcast, The Apology Line, begins with Alan Bridge posting flyers around New York City asking people to anonymously apologize for their crimes. Not to God, not to the police, but to his answering machine. Within hours, the calls started coming in. People apologizing for stealing, infidelity, lying, and even murder. Alan got dozens of calls from people claiming to be murderers, but one man stood out. Richie. He was deliberate, measured, and his calls would leave thousands wondering if he really was the serial killer he claimed to be. That was until Richie offered to provide proof of his crimes. I'm about to play you a preview of The Apology Line, but while you're listening, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or you can listen early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Wondery. Feel the story.
3: The following contains descriptions of violence, including sexual violence, and may not be suitable for all listeners. Please be advised. It was early 1981 and I was with a group of friends at a loft in New York City.
2: It was a dinner party with I think about six, maybe eight of us around the the big table.
3: Doug Welch was there too. Through the huge windows, we could see the lights of the Empire State Building. Rosary candles flickered on a curved bookcase that separated the living room from the bedroom. These gatherings always went late. We were all artists, so we talked about our work, politics, and how we were surviving in the city. The host was a man named
2: Alan. Toward the end of the dinner, as it was wrapping up, um, Alan just sort of casually said, would anyone like to hear the latest that came in today from Apology?
3: Apology? was Alan's newest project. Doug's girlfriend Carrie vaguely remembered it had something to do with people calling a phone line. Alan held up a cassette tape. Alan was standing and sort of gesticulating and yeah, he was
2: excited. And we all kind of said, well, sure.
3: Alan walked over to his cassette player, popped in the tape and turned out the lights. First, we listened to what every person who called Alan's phone line would hear, an outgoing message in Alan's deadpan voice. This is apology. Apology is not associated with the police
2: or any other organization, but rather is a way for you to tell people what you have done wrong and how you feel about it. All statements received by apology will be played back to the public, so please do not identify yourself. Talk for as long as you want.
3: Then we heard the voices of callers who'd left messages.
2: If it's a crime, I did not report it down in the men's room at Penn Station. Someone being forced in the booth and being robbed. I feel very bad about not reporting
3: it. Bye. I'm really sorry because I'm white, female, and rich. I would like to stop feeling the way I do about the blacks and the Puerto Ricans and the Chinese and the Japs.
2: I just wanted to say I'm sorry to all those poor souls out there that wake up black and blue the next day after I beat the shit out of them. I've got not really an apology to make, except to one person, who is my lover, who is listening on an extension. And I'm sorry that I've made his life difficult. To him, I
3: love you. Max, I apologize. Around the dinner table, no one moved. Everything became quiet except the tapes. The calls kept coming and became more disturbing. Well, I guess, uh, you know, to the 15 or 20 people that I've stolen money from
2: and mugged and robbed and frightened, I'm sorry. I'm sorry.
3: (laughs) I don't have to say it 15 times, do I? This last caller wasn't like the others. Let's see, there's uh, Henry. Uh, I killed Henry. He was a neighbor. He was a, uh, he was a classmate of mine. Around the table, the mood suddenly
2: changed. The atmosphere in the room just shifted from this convivial, you know, post-dinner contentment to abject horror as this uh, almost this incubus sort of entered the room through the speaker and and was actually in the room with us this is a fantastic service that you're doing it was um, a very tortured uh, yet dangerous sounding person the world would be full of people like me if we just knew that all we had to do was just say i'm sorry and everything is all right hearing that voice and watching that light just blinking, blinking, blinking red, and uh, kind of wanting it to stop.
3: (laughs) Alan got up and turned the lights back on. He looked around, waiting for a response.
2: I just remember us all looking over our empty wine glasses at each other with our jaws hanging open. No one could say a thing. I think we all... (laughs) just silently put on our coats and we just sort of filed out quietly and said thank you very much
3: (laughs) doug and carrie were quiet on the walk to the subway
2: once we were on the train i just remember looking at every all these faces and wondering is that that sicko who was just you know just confessing everything to us you know it wasn't something you listen to and then just move on
3: I couldn't move on either. Alan's art project was starting to take on a life of its own, and it would eventually take over his life and mine.